Welcome back to the Wit and Whiskey Cast. I'm DJ Gagnon, joined here by my co-host with the most, Mark Rossetti. Hola, Juan Valdez. And uh, we're, we're here, uh, we are the snake eating its own tail today. We, we are going to be talking about whiskey and nothing but whiskey and then maybe some more whiskey. Yo, dog, we heard you like whiskey. <laughs> so, so we, we put whiskey in your whiskey <laughs> so that you can talk about whiskey while you talk about whiskey. Yep. Uh, but before we get there, uh, what you been up to this week, man? Oh, this week was a lot of fun. They, uh, we have a feasibility study going on for work. So uh, the people, the ladies from the company that are doing the feasibility study came up from Philadelphia. And of course, the day they came up from Philadelphia, basically the entirety of Wilkes-Barre had no power. <laughs> uh, downtown was just like, nope, sorry. I mean, it can't be this because of snow, can it? No, apparently uh, when they built yet another sheets, uh, they didn't, you know, like do any feasibility studies or anything as to how it was going to affect the grid. So a transformer exploded. <laughs> and like I saw pictures of it. It fucking went boom. So, yeah, basically the entirety of the day, there was no power in the office or whatever, which was fun. Uh, I then had to explain to poor Allison how toilets work. What? <laughs> well, of course, you know, she doesn't live in civilization. She doesn't have, you know, her streets aren't paved, nothing. So uh, they have well water. So like when the power goes out, their toilets don't work because they have a water pump. Mm-hmm. So she was like desperately trying to find a bathroom. And I'm like, just go pee. She's like, no, but, you know, we can't flush the toilets. And I'm like, oh, dear, you. God, no. Here in civilization, we have water. Is uh is the homestead that does that have well water or is that on the grid? No, 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 no. We're we're on the grid. We believe in technology here. I mean you uh, say that, but I'm <laughs> I'm on well and septic, so Yes, but I mean you also can't be found from Google Earth, so That's fair. I I, I mean it would you 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 act as if I'm asking a stupid question, but you do live at a historical landmark. It's not outside the realm of possibility for it not to be technologically advanced. You've been to my house, though, number one. And number two, we literally are alongside a highway. Yeah, I, I've been to your house, but the power wasn't out. I didn't test my theory. Also, DJs did not bring enough dinner for all of us, folks. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, trying surreptitiously to eat some dinner in the background because I may have skipped most of my meals today. It's totally so. You can't tell at all. It's fine. It pairs really well with whiskey. Uh, yeah, I, I made you proud. I made a risotto tonight. I was just about to say, are you trying to be Italian eating at 10 after 9 in the evening as we record this? Yes, I'm trying to be Italian by eating risotto on my 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 whiskey podcast with my Italian co-host. Because oh, they do. They ate fucking late over there. When I spent my two weeks in Italy, I was eating about 8 o'clock at night every night and was starving. And they were laughing at me. And they're like, you Americans eat so early. Did you tell them you're actually an Italian-American? No, I didn't want to end up in the pillars of a new building that was going up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, we have that. 
But no, I mean, other than that, it, it is what it is. We're going to, I'm going down the, the old man's house tomorrow. We're going to take the fence down because it's actually supposed to go more than 48 hours without raining this week. So they might come and start in the garage Ooh. about like three weeks early, four weeks early, three weeks early. So I'm excited. So am I. Uh, so that'll be tomorrow. You know, it'll be fun to get to play with a bolt cutter and a torch. Uh, what about you? What'd you do this week? Uh, you know, uh, it, it was quarterly planning at work, so this was kind of just a, a really draining week. Um, and I'm really glad it's over. I definitely had cocktail in hand for my last couple of meetings at, uh, on Friday. Um, but yeah, it was, it was fine. Uh, you know, put some furniture together, cleaned up some of the house. I mean, nothing, nothing too exciting right now. Yeah. I wish I had more stories to tell, but it was kind of a boring week this week. Oh, I, uh, I, my stitches are gone. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Uh, that, that was kind of fun in the shower to just be pulling them out because they were dissolved and just kind of hanging out into the wind. Um, but that, that was nice. I, I, it no longer itches terribly. Well, I mean, uh, you know, big friend of the show, uh, Christine, who is an EMT, she actually sent me a bunch of different cloth tape recommendations to give to you because she was listening to our last couple episodes. And <laughs> I said, no, it's it's more fun for him to be miserable. I, <laughs> I said, did, I'm not going to send him any of these. I did go out and get like four rolls of hypoallergenic cloth tape and uh, my skin is not marred at all. So, um, you know, I right along the same lines. Thanks for listening, Christine. And thanks for those recommendations that... Mark is an asshole and did not deliver. <laughs> uh, I mean, in my defense, I, I think that at least the first one or two she did send when she was at work and she does work the graveyard shift. So it was like three 30 in the morning and I just wake up to all these fucking tape websites. Like, <laughs> what the hell? I missed something here. No, I, I found like extra padded, like bandaid gauze pads and I found all this cloth tape and I was like, yeah, I just, I did it up. Uh, I, I was a baby for like three days and then I, I actually had decent supplies. Well, there you go. Um, but what are you drinking, buddy? Well, you know, we're, we're, we're doing whiskey and whiskey and, uh, I didn't have time this week with everything that was going on to go out and get X, Y, and Z. So I was like, Oh, what, what haven't I done? So I decided to. Uh, go back, basically, uh, I'm traveling back in time to my bachelor party, because anytime I taste one of these from now on, it it's, uh, takes me back there. It's supposed to be a shot, but you can make it in large enough quantities to make it as a cocktail. I am drinking a snake bite. Ooh. Now, for those of you who don't know, this is definitely a uh, love it or hate it drink. There are two types of reactions to the snake bite. One is what DJ just said, and the other one is everybody else just goes, <laughs> uh, I don't mind it. Uh, so basically, what is a snake bite? For those of you who don't know, it's Yukon Jack and lime juice. That's it. And technically, I'm cheating this week, because despite what you may read, despite what you may think, Yukon Jack is not a whiskey. It is a liqueur. Uh, so it's basically, it's a whiskey base, it's Canadian whiskey base with honey and sugar 
and it does become a liqueur then, uh, you know, it becomes Yukon Jack. I, I'm not a big honey guy. Allie and I, when I'm not explaining to her how a toilet works, we get into arguments about honey. If it were up to her, I think she would carry a squeeze bottle of honey everywhere and put it on everything. <laughs> she says she likes to claim that I hate honey. I don't. I actually like the flavor of honey. I like a lot of different, you know, honey related things. The problem is honey is such a strong flavor. Honey overpowers almost everything. You just have you have to have like just a little bit. If you put in honey and you know, even reasonable, normal quantities, it's just going to overpower the taste of everything. So because of that, I can't drink Yukon straight because it's just too sickeningly sweet to me. Mm -hmm. And that's where the lime juice comes in because it gets rid of all that sugar bite. Uh, it takes you a little bit closer to the tart. Uh, you're only supposed to like for each two ounces of, if you're doing the shot for every two ounces of Yukon, you're only really supposed to do a splash up to maybe half of an ounce of lime juice. I I don't do that. I go almost even because I want it to basically be, you know, Canadian whiskey, lemon, lime soda. Uh, and you want the, you want the tart, you, you know, it's called a snake bite for a reason. And uh, this, the bachelor party story was kind of funny because we were going, you know, bar to bar to bar and the boys had me decked out with a crown and a sash and a whole bunch of things. So naturally people are wondering what in the hell is going on? <laughs> and they would start asking questions. And when they found out that it was my bachelor party, they would start to say, well, okay, let me buy you a drink. You know, it's your bachelor party, blah, blah, blah. What, what do you want? And so I would tell the people, Hey, you, you're buying, you can buy me whatever the hell you want to buy me, but it just can't be anything sweet. I'm not a sweet guy. And every, the, the universal thing was, oh, well, then you want a snake bite. That's the total opposite of sweet, <laughs> which it is if it's made right. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, pretty good. Uh, Yukon's also 100 proof. So it'll get you there. That's awesome. Hmm. <laughs> As I like choke on it. What as I'm trying to like talk, breathe, and drink at the same time. What about you? What are you drinking this week? Well, we talked at some point and I don't remember what episode, but I think you had brought it up in Whiskey News that uh Dogfish Head Brewery had done some canned cocktails. Yes. Uh well I got my hands on some. Uh, which what I was, sorcery is this? Yeah, I uh, I just happened across it in the the grocery store. Uh, it was in with like craft beers and stuff. And as soon as you had told me, I was like, huh, I wonder if. And so I was kind of touring through uh, and I found their cherry bergamot whiskey sour in a can. And uh, it's it's pretty good. It's not amazing, but I will say it's much better than that Jim Beam and Cola in a can that I had that one time. <laughs> Yeah, you were not a fan of that. No, no, probably the worst thing I've ever drank. Uh, but no, it's really good. Uh, I I will say if, and maybe this is a discussion topic. This th it threw me off because it's fizzy. Oh, okay. Um, and I don't really think of like whiskey drinks other than maybe scotch and soda as fizzy. Like I don't, I don't add a splash of soda water to, you know, a whiskey sour or to a, uh, uh, an old fashioned. I know some people do. So I took a sip of it and I was like, what is this? Oh, it's fizzy because it's like 
a brewery. That makes sense. So I, I guess here's like a silly question. Can you not can things unless they're carbonated? I don't think you can because I think you require the carbonation to actually pop the can. But but I seem to remember there being like I feel like I've had apple juice in a can before. Maybe. Have you ever seen <laughs> apple juice in a can? I, I don't know. I like I'm That must be one of those weird Canadian American things. <laughs> um yeah, so I I don't know maybe maybe not, um, but it is pretty good. It's uh, it's not what I really expected. I I gotta be honest, I kind of expected it to be shit. So uh, the fact that it's not is actually pretty great. Uh, it, it it's a whiskey sour. Uh, it's got some citrus. It's got some cherry to it. Uh, it's definitely more complex than I thought you could get in a can, but. I mean, it makes me wish that I liked beer more so that I could enjoy Dogfish Head, but uh, I don't, so I guess this is the only entry I'll be really trying. Uh, I do want to try some of their other entries if I can get their hands on, uh, my hands on their their canned cocktails, um, but I didn't see any others. It looks like they actually have quite a few. Uh, so just to remind everybody, they've got the Strawberry and Honeyberry Vodka Lemonade, a blueberry shrub vodka soda, a blood orange and mango vodka crush, lemon and lime gin crush, and a uh, they've got like variety packs in the whiskey sour. So, um, if you end up getting uh, getting your hands on some, feel free to send us a picture uh, to our social media or to our email. We'd love to to kind of see what they look like out in the wild. Yeah, that would be pretty good. Uh, you know, I laugh when you're talking about liking beers and liking Dogfish Head. I'm a little bit more into beer than you are, but I'm not very big into Dogfish Head. I've, I have yet to find one of their beers I actually like. Mostly because at least all the stuff of theirs I've had is very, very hoppy and just bleh. I feel like I feel like the little bit that I know about beer is that they are kind of IPA-centric. Yeah, and I don't like skunky beer that went bad on a boat, so... <laughs> I feel like your thoughts on IPAs are like my thoughts on on peaty scotches. I mean, kind of, but like peaty scotches are actually good. Uh, I mean, that's certainly a choice. <laughs> what do we have for right. whiskey news? Tell me something cool. Well, I'm afraid whiskey news today is it, it's bad news. Oh no, I don't like that. We we have been replaced. No. This is the last episode of the Wit and Whiskey that there is. Because a company, actually it's not a company, it's a team of scientists working for the University of Technology in Sydney, Australia. Those goddamn Australians. <laughs> they have uh, recently published a paper in the IEEE Sensors Journal, which is uh, a technology. Oh God, that hurts. Uh, it's called IEEE. I.E. Oh, my God. Uh, Why so, would you do that? that? That causes me physical pain, Mark. Uh, well, you know, I, I've, I had never heard of this, this I.E. before, oh, but apparently God, it's, it's a big deal. And so the, the scientists from the, the, the university in Sydney, they have more acronyms that they're trying to make us pronounce as words, but I'm not going to. They have uh, created the 
N-O-S.E, which if you're going to make that a word, it should be the nose but they're actually, you pronounce it the other way around, the E-nose. So they have created a device and corresponding computer program that can sniff, and I use sniff in air quotes, a whiskey and determine its region, its makeup, and its brand. I mean, that's pretty cool. Um, the idea is to have a rapid, easy-to-use, real-time assessment of whiskey and be able to identify the quality and uncover any adulteration or fraud. So obviously this is mainly being marketed as a uh, combatant against counterfeiters. We had talked about uh, limited-run counterfeiters. I think it was the middle of last season. Now, the numbers are pretty ridiculous. They... Uh, were able, they, in the main thing, they were able to identify three blended malts and three single malt Scotch whiskeys. They were able to separate between the two, uh, as well as for all the other uh, non-Scotches they gave it. The Enos produced a 100% accuracy rate for detecting the region of a whiskey, a 96.2% accuracy rate for its brand, and a 92.4% rate for its style, which is shit better than most of the people that come into Conrad's on a given day. That's pretty good. Uh, the photo of it, though, is a little disconcerting because you have the actual device itself, which they call a vial. It's basically a – it looks kind of like a big stand-up external hard drive that has tubes going through it, and you feed the uh, – you feed the whiskey into there, and then it also requires a tablet to be hooked up to it, and as well as a laptop and mouse. And this laptop in this photo, I will send you this photo, uh, you know, later on before we're done. It is like the first IBM ThinkPad ever built. Jesus. Remember the really th- chunky ones that had like that really weird red mouse button in the middle? <laughs> I do. Oh my God. It's, yeah. It's one of those that they're running the program. On. Well, that's unfortunate. So it must not take a lot of Ram. Uh, it, it's still technically classified as a prototype. However, they are looking for funding, preferably with the backing of this, the distillers, uh, yeah, distilling industry in order to get it, uh, on the market. So be on the lookout for the Eno's. And pick up your latest copy of IE. Oh my god, it's IEEE. They set all the standards in my industry. Don't stop it. Well, they they are the ones that are backing up the old IBM ThinkPad that can tell you where a whiskey comes from. I mean, that uh, is pretty cool. Can, can it we is get, pretty cool. Can, we, can we get one for personal use? I was going to say, it's going to put us out of a job. <laughs> Everything we've learned in these last three years about palate and taste. Is or completely useless. Or it's going to make us sound really smart. <laughs> oh, yes. Not tell everyone we have one. Then we're going to get the IEEE people after us. Oh, I'm so proud. Yeah, I give you that one. All right. You know, aside from various letters, what do you have over there? Okay. So I kind of went down a rabbit hole in the Internet today. I don't recommend that for anything. <laughs> no. Um, luckily it stayed PG the whole time, but I wanted to learn, I'm kind of obsessed with trying to figure out 
tea syrups and things like that in cocktails. We talked about that, I think, last week. And one of my favorite teas is like Earl Grey and Lady Grey. And a primary ingredient of those teas is bergamot. And I kind of went down a rabbit hole today trying to figure out what use bergamot has in cocktails because this dogfish head thing I'm drinking is a cherry bergamot whiskey sour. Interesting. And uh, so come to find out, uh, these the bergamot is... Uh, it's technically an orange, but it looks more like a lime or a lemon. And uh, it's it's a fruit. It's grown in, in Italy. Uh, and the fruit is not recommended for human consumption. Nice. Uh, yeah, it's really it's really interesting. You can read a lot about bergamot. But these oranges, they're so bitter and acidic, they're just not recommended to just eat. But you can uh, extract the oils, which is what is used. Uh, there's like a bergamot uh, essential oil that you can you can do, and you can get uh, food-grade versions of it. Uh, there's also, incidentally, a cold-pressed version um, that is supposed to be better for you. So for anybody who's... Uh, out there and interested in making like lotions or, or skin products, um, normal the the normal bergamot process actually makes your skin a little bit more sensitive to sun. Uh, so if you get like a bergamot and you use it in a lotion or you drink too much bergamot tea, uh, it could make you a little bit more susceptible to the sun. Uh, so there is like a cold pressed version of the oil that that negates that, which I found really interesting. Has nothing to do with cocktails, but I just wanted to share that. Uh, Are you like secretly, you know, like a vampire, and you're trying to like tell all your vampire friends not to drink too much of this? Not necessarily, but a lot of what you'll see is bergamot is one of those essential oils, like lavender or uh, like vanilla or lemon uh, that you, that just live in like the alternative med- medicine scene and they're used a lot in like uh, chapsticks and lotions and things like that. So if you use a lotion that has a lot of bergamot in it, uh, then that can actually make your the skin that you use the lotion on more sensitive to sun. It's not Again, nothing to do with cocktails, but I told you it was a rabbit hole, folks. <laughs> Literally, both of our female listeners are jotting this down. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone else has fallen asleep. Anywho, um, what they did say on various cooking and cocktail uh, sites is that the fruit of the bergamot could be used to make a marmalade. And Which is a great word. I just like saying I I do, too. Also, I don't know about you, but I grew up on both Winnie the Pooh and Paddington. So I I have a fascination with both honey and marmalade. No, I, I Paddington was too English for me. So I don't remember how I got my hands in the Paddington book series, but they're they're good in of themselves. Um, so marmalade is something that you can use in cocktails, right? It's basically uh, a it's orange jelly, right? It's not hyper sweet. Uh, and you could use that for 
any number of cocktails that use orange, right? Uh, you could use it in a margarita. You could use it in a uh, old-fashioned. Uh, you could probably combine some bergamot and cherry into an interesting Manhattan. I mean, Manhattan's not super sweet anyways, and neither is marmalade, so there's some possibilities there. Uh, I saw marmalade being paired with egg whites in cocktails a lot in, in an interesting couple of ways. Um, I also saw some recommendations that bergamot uh, it could be used in things like Negronis. You know, not the not the sweetest cocktail in the world. Uh, and then the 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 big center stage that bergamot tends to take in uh, society in general is the oils that you excrete uh, excrete. That's not a fun word to say. Woof. Um, <laughs> <laughs> out of its skins, out of the the rinds. So you can like uh, if you make Earl Grey tea from scratch, you're generally going to infuse those oils into the dried tea leaves. You might spray some bergamot oil on the tea leaves. You might put them in a tin with some bergamot rinds to kind of just hang out and mellow, a little bit like how uh, Mark infused whiskey into that cigar that one time. Um, but you can also extract the oil, use it to make a bitter there's there's bergamot bitters you can you can find uh, there's bergamot syrups you could use you could just as easily get a spritzer of it and spritz it over your cocktails we talk a lot about um, you know expressing oils into cocktails whether it's uh, a, an interesting martini or it's an old fashioned um, the reason why I say a spritzer of it is because the likelihood of you finding uh, the actual fruit of a bergamot in the wild is very low here in the States. Uh, I've never seen one in person. You ever seen a bergamot? No, can't yeah. say I have. So you're much, it's much more likely that you're going to be able to get your hands on food, gr food quality or food grade bergamot oil. And then you can use that oil in interesting ways. You can use it. Um, I, I, I haven't seen, the possibility of getting it in a large enough quantity very easily, but you could technically use fat washing and a large amount of bergamot oil, um, which could be really interesting. I, I can't, I can't currently think of a good whiskey I'd want to pair with it, but maybe fat washing some gin, uh, would be interesting. So that, that's my tools of the trade this week. Bergamot, tell your friends. That is two weeks in a row you have closed uh, Tools of the Trade with gin. I mean, gin is my favorite liquor next to whiskey. Good save there, boy. <laughs> next to whiskey. I do love whiskey above all else, uh, but, but gin still holds a special place in my heart. Well, I hope you fucking like whiskey above all else, because did we mention this week what our topic is? <laughs> whiskey, 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 whiskey. Oh. <laughs> uh, would that technically make us the W and W W and W this week? I think so. <laughs> Wit and oh, Whiskey shit. presents Whiskey and Whiskey. <laughs> oh, there we go. More. We 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 had what Triple E. Now we got Quad W. Mm -hmm. Just spamming acronyms at people. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to start us off with the most American whiskey of them all. Well, rye. 
Now, is it the gen- most American? I mean, considering that bourbon kind of spun out of rye. I mean, this is like, I have Cheers, you have Frasier. <laughs> Which, admittedly, I, that's actually a terrible analogy because I like Frasier a lot more than everyone. Yeah, like Frasier is superior. <laughs> but you know what I mean. I have... Oh, okay. Well, well I mean, this kind of works because neither one of them is funny. But I have Seinfeld and you have Curb Your Enthusiasm. I have not seen either of those. I don't recommend either one. Seinfeld is at least better. Curb Your Enthusiasm is just a desperate, lonely man trying to make money off the fact that he created Seinfeld. Uh, Welcome to Hot Takes and Whiskey, folks. Have we done Hot Takes and Whiskey TV? Uh, I feel... I don't know. I'm going to look in the archive while you talk about Rye. Look in the archive, because that could be a fun one. Uh, So anyway, Rye. I'm joking about it being American. It's generally North American. We have to be fair to our friends up north, uh, you know, DJ's ancestors in Canada. Uh, they they also enjoy a good bottle of rye. And it does feature many similarities to bourbon because they're very, you know, it's the offshoot. It comes down to the, the mash bill and the way they're aged. Ryes were generally very big pre-prohibition. And we actually talked about this during our prohibition series. Uh, on a lot of cheaper mainstream rye, Jim Beam being the big one, they will actually just, oh, this is our pre-prohibition recipe. We've gone back to the pre-prohibition mash bill, so it's mostly rye. Mm. Uh, mm? <laughs> Good risotto? Great. No, no, no. I, I'm agreeing with you because um, <laughs> a lot of what I was reading with bourbons was they were defining bourbons by how they were different from rye. Yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, recently, you know, if you've ever heard of the term the new tens, which basically means from 2010 until currently. And so basically the last decade we just finished. And if DJ and I ever start with the decades in whiskey, uh, I'm going to carry on a conversation I was having at work this week about how absolutely nothing happened from like 2008 to 2014. But somewhere in that window, uh, the beginnings of what they call now the rye renaissance occur. And it was really interesting because I hadn't really started drinking rye yet. At this point, I was still drinking bourbon. And at this point, uh, one good thing the hipsters did was they combed their neck beards and they said, we want to go back to the way things were. We want to try some rye whiskeys. And so a few distilleries started making them. They started to sell. And eventually little by little by little, uh, you know, more and more distilleries started making them. And now they're basically, if you want a rye of something, you can find it with a few exceptions. Ryes could be fun. They could be uh, very attainable or they could be, you know, pretty oof. Uh, price range starts at like $20, $25 for a well bottle. If you're looking at something like Old Overholt, that's like $21. And then you can go all the way up to over $300 for some of the more aged ones. And I mean, this is just for common stuff you could actually find on the shelf. I'm not talking about any of the Van Winkles and stuff that are $1,500, dollars <laughs> yeah. This is just stuff that you could walk into a store and buy. Uh, so we talked about the mash bill. What's the gimmick? Well, it has to have at least 51% rye in the mash bill. It has to be primarily rye. Uh, you know, just like a corporation, you have to have 51% to have a controlling share. You have to have 51% rye in the mash bill. 
Interestingly enough, uh, that is what's listed as an underage rye, which is a terrible name. They really need to think of a, a better name because it's it's a very low quantity of rye. Most rye snobs, myself included, will want 60 to 65% minimum, and you can go all the way up to 100%. Uh, that David Ortiz bottle of Whistle Pig that I ordered, uh, that's 100% rye. You get nothing else. That's amazing. So... Uh, you know, whatever suits your fancy, but it has to have at least 51% to be classified as a rye. They're generally aged between two years and 10 years. Of course, you don't get an age statement until four years, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, but, you know, they're kept in barrels for two years, three years, all the way up to 10. Uh, as I said, they age them in barrels. They're usually new, but some places do advertise that they reuse the barrels. And there's nothing wrong with that. It just gives it a little different flavor profile. Uh, most of the barrels are usually oak. Uh, if they're not, it's generally specified what type of wood is used. Or if it, uh, just like the used barrels, uh, you know, if you have something that's finished, uh, like the uh, sherry rye that I have upstairs. Yeah, okay, well, we put this in, boom, you know, so we, we had them in the oak barrels and we took them out and we put them in these used sherry barrels. But they're always aged in wood. And so uh, because of that, they're usually pretty strong. They're around 90 proof. Uh, you know, when you get into the bottle and bond stuff, which we'll talk about, that's that's 100 and up. But usually the base is right around 90 on average. So the greater your rye that you have in the mash bill, the greater the bite. You always hear us talking about that good rye bite and that spiciness. Um, that is the flavor of the grain that they're using. It's like when you have rye bread, you get that almost like, you know, spicy, bitey, almost peppery taste with a good rye bread. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes when they want to finish things, you'll see some of the sherry ones, you'll see some of the blends. They want to put some fruity tones in just to try to balance the spice out. Now, some of the crazier ones, the 90% and up rye ones, just like, no, here's all your spice, have fun. Uh, but you know, usually if you're in the 60 to 65% range, or if you're in the, the 51%, the underage rise, you're going to get something on the back end to try to balance out that bite. Now rise can generally be bottle and bond and advertise and bottle and bond, much like bourbon. Cause again, this is another similarity they have. And all that means is it originally was a government consumer safety program because people were being sketchy. And we're adding things to liquor. We talked about this during the Prohibition series. Oh, yeah. So all bottle and bond meant was that it was aged for a minimum of four years by the producer, by the distiller. Nothing was added to it. And it was at least 100 proof. It was strong bourbon, strong rye, because, again, you know, alcohol is disinfectant and people want strong booze, etc., and the bond was the seal. So, see, this is sealed. This is this has been aged for at least four years, and nobody's added anything to it. So you have the bond on it. This, much like rye itself, died pretty hardcore after prohibition, uh, because once makers were made, uh, distillers were making liquor again, uh, the stuff that was added to it went down considerably, and people didn't really give a shit whether it was strong or not. They had had a decade of drinking rock gut and moonshine. They're like, can we just have some Jack Daniels? Like, is that okay? Can we just get a bottle of that? <laughs> uh, but you will still see some stuff is bottle and bond and it's usually a hundred proof. Some of them are 104. I have one bottle upstairs is 104. 
it's that's all that means. It, it doesn't mean much today. Likewise, rise can be single barrel, and single barrel means exactly what it says on the tin. All the stuff in that bottle comes from a single barrel in the collection. Most of the time. We'll talk about some of the exceptions later. <laughs> uh, and generally that's better because you're not getting a few different barrels mixed in. Because even though every barrel is the same wood, even though every barrel is supposedly the same finish, they all age differently. I mean, wood is a living thing. So it's going to age differently. It's going to decompose differently like for like. So when you have blends of different barrels, you do lose some of the subtleties and some of the taste. Whereas you have a single barrel bottle you're getting the same consistency all the way through. Uh, we talked about it with price. They could either be mass produced. Jack Daniels has their own. Jim Beam has their own. I mentioned Old Overholt. Or you could have some of the more expensive allocated bottles. You have Whistle Pig. You have High West. Uh, those are some of the pricier rise you could find. So what do they pair with? You know, Besides the fact that everything I'm going to talk about pairs great with a cigar or a pipe. If you want to eat, well, you want something to balance out the spice. So a shrimp cocktail is actually really good with a glass of rye. And I'm not the biggest seafood guy, but a shrimp cocktail works really well. Believe it or not, fried onion rings, if you're looking for something a little bit more on the entry level. I mean, I wouldn't blow a bottle of High West double rye with fried onion rings. But if you're sitting down with a nice glass of uh, Jack single barrel, yeah, put some onion rings on there. I mean, I kind of feel like fried food in general goes well with the rye. It does, but I wouldn't like. I wouldn't do fried meats with it. I, I think I that would, would be no. I I'm thinking. I, I should have said like fried vegetables. Like I think like fries, right? Like a plate of like waffle yeah. fries or something. Fries, waffle fries would be good. Onion rings would be good. If you go to the fair and you get like the fried cauliflower, that'd be good. Uh, likewise, this is something that I'm very big on because I like it anyway. A glass of rye pairs great with dark chocolate, mm. and like insanely dark because you get the bitterness and the bite and it all comes together. So if you can get like some of that lint chocolate, 75% cocoa, 80% cocoa, that's good shit with a glass of rye. Uh, and then, you know, the famous cocktails, best cocktails, of course, a Manhattan. It's, and then the, uh, and then the New York sour, which is probably, it may be my favorite, my new favorite. It may have eclipsed the Manhattan. May have. May have. Uh, so that's everything you want to know about rye in six and a half minutes. <laughs> Wait, well, what are you going to educate us on? Give us one. All right. So I'm going to just tee it right off of rye and go right into bourbon. You should. They're brothers. They are. Uh, uh, so bourbon is an American distillate. Uh, it's made primarily from corn. Uh, so much like rye has to be uh, 51% rye, bourbon has to be 51% corn. Uh, it's always, nowadays I should say, because there's definitely been changes to what defines bourbon and rye over the years. Oh, um, Jesus, yes. Yeah. Uh, but let, just modern times uh, always has to be aged at least two years in new charred oak barrels. And it's those barrels that really give bourbon its signature taste. It's the it's the 51% corn, the new charred oak barrels. Uh, just like, well, actually, I'm not sure if rye has the same rule. Bourbon definitely cannot contain additives or, or colorings um, to be actually labeled a bourbon, which I found really interesting. Rye does technically have that rule, but what is, what's considered an add additive and what actually is an additive? Like, there's a lot of gray areas and loopholes, mm -hmm. which is why I didn't include it. But yeah, officially, yes. Yeah, officially... 
you know, no colorings, no additives. Now, for those of you who may not know much about how distillation works, uh, you start with fermentation that you then distill and you then barrel that distillate to age. So the the mash uh, can be uh, must be distilled to no more than 160 proof, which I found really interesting because that's pretty fucking high. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and that's actually something that Rye doesn't have because Jack Daniels was playing around. They, I, I didn't get a bottle, but they did a limited release that was 184 proof. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think this is why we we don't see overproof very often anymore. No. I, I don't see overproof rums or whiskeys almost ever anymore because one of the other rules of bourbon is that it can be bottled at no higher than 125 proof. Um, I think I think there again loopholes because I've definitely seen overproof uh, whiskeys before. I've seen overproof bourbons, but um, I I don't I honestly don't know how they get the the sign off to call those bourbons. Um, it requires an age statement if aged fewer than four years, which I thought was really really kind of cool and and silly. Um, the the thing that separates bourbon from American whiskeys and rye is that they they have to be when they're in the barrel they have to be stored on their side. Which yes. Is, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. It's more surface area for the liquor, and and you get a more uniform age. Uh, most of bourbon comes from Kentucky, but uh, not all of it. It does have to be an American, and it it, it is an American distillate. Uh, so if if you use the same formula outside of the U.S., you call it whiskey, not bourbon. Uh, it started to be distilled as early as the 18th century, which I thought was pretty fucking amazing. And it was named after the Bourbon dynasty of 18th century France. Uh, so the requirement of the corn and the charred oak tends to lend a slightly smoky sweetness. Uh, and I'm sure Mark will talk about this when he gets to one of his other offerings, but but corn tends to lend a sweetness to whiskey. Yes. Uh, no matter what what kind of mash you're doing, corn's going to lend that that sweetness. So bourbon, uh, I, I, I don't know if anybody else refers it to this, but I like to think of bourbon as like the candy of whiskeys. It's always going to be the sweeter option if you're if you're thinking about, uh, you know, what you want to be drinking that night. So it tends to pair well with things that are salty. Um, so, you know, if you're in Philly and you get a, a, a hot pretzel, uh, you know, grab a bourbon. Why not? Uh, it, it tends to pair pretty well with seafood as well. Seafood tends to be a little salty. Uh, so lots of really good options there for you. That was a fun noise that you just made. I was trying to, uh, trying to hold a sneeze in. Sorry. <laughs> it hurt. Uh, so on the low end of bourbons, we've got things like, uh, sorry, Mark, Wild Turkey and Maker's Mark. Um, not to say they're bad. They're, they're just, they tend to be a little bit on the cheaper end under, you know, under $25 usually. Uh, for mid-tier, uh, under 50 bucks, you get like Bullet and Knob Creek. And then high end, uh, you know, ranging from $51 all the way up to $1,500. you have got things like Blanton's and Pappy Van Winkle. Um, so yeah, I don't, I haven't tried those last two. I don't know if I will ever get a chance to try Pappy, but, uh, we'll see. Hopefully someday. Yeah. I mean, it's got to keep entering the lottery. Yeah. 
Um, but because of its sweetness, uh, it tends to lend itself really well to old fashions. Uh, so if you if you're gonna if you want to try an old fashioned, you're not sure what to reach for. You know, go grab yourself a, a bourbon. Uh, Bullet does tend to make pretty great entries into both bourbon and rye, and they sit right next to each other on the shelf. So if you're not sure where to start, uh, that might be a good way for you to get something if you've got a little money on hand. It's true. All right, what you got next? Well, again, we're just we're feeding off of each other here. We have a type, folks, in case you can't tell. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about another one that is emerging uh, in pop- – why I should say re-emerging in popularity lately, which is corn whiskey, straight corn whiskey. And uh, DJ set the table for me beautifully there because it is technically a subset of bourbon. Uh, if you were to make a quote unquote corn whiskey, but you follow all the other requirements that DJ laid out, it would still technically be a super high corn mash bill bourbon. Yeah. They're not always advertised like that though. Uh, because again, you'll see some places that advertises quote unquote corn whiskey as 51%. Again, that's underage. That's not like true corn whiskey. Uh, this is, again, United States, mostly southern U.S., same region as bourbon, uh, once again uh, became bigger. This one became bigger post-Prohibition, but also kind of started during Prohibition because people were kind of making their own. You know, we have a lot of corn farmers in America. In case we you don't do. know that. We've got a lot. Uh, most, quote-unquote, true corn whiskeys, however, are just straight 100% corn mash bill. And that oftentimes, but not always, leads to just a clear, almost moonshine appearance, which is a lot of fun. Uh, Most of the time, a quote-unquote true corn whiskey isn't aged, or if they are, they're uh, only aged very briefly. That's where the under four years DJ was talking about comes in. And it's almost always in used barrels, secondhand barrels. You're not going to waste good fresh oak on a 100% corn whiskey. Uh, because of this, you don't get any of the woody tones. You don't get any of the earthen tones. You don't get any smoky tones. You get the really sweetness from the corn. And it's not very complex, the palate. You get like sort of a buttery creaminess and then burn. Amazing. Uh, if you have the more underage corn that are really bourbons, they can be bottled and bond or single barrel like the rise. True corn whiskeys never are. No. Because <laughs> they don't age them. They're not, you know, the proofs don't matter. You can find any type of proof, um, you know, 80, 90, 100, all the way up to freaking 140. Go blind uh, if you look hard enough. Virtually all corn whiskeys are just mass produced, lower end. I mean, your price range, you can get a bottle for like 15 bucks if you know where to look. Some of the higher end stuff I could find online was like $65. It's not an expensive genre. Yeah. Uh, if you know how to distill and you have enough corn, you can make your own. Uh, they pair great with cheeses. Like if you have a, like a cheese platter, they're pretty good with that because you have the sweetness to go with some of the stronger cheeses. Uh, any type of pork, uh, especially if it's barbecued and just barbecue in general. Like if you're having ribs, oh, a glass of corn whiskey with ribs, man. Oh, man. Uh, And uh, the best cocktail for it, really the only cocktail that pretty much screams for a corn whiskey is the Golden Derby. 
Yeah, so that that's basically we've done rye, we've done bourbon, we've done corn. We have killed bourbon. <laughs> we have <laughs> bourbon is dead. Give us something that isn't bourbon. All right, so I'm going to jump us over the pond and talk about Irish whiskeys. Okay, so Irish whiskeys, of course, have to be made in Ireland. Duh. Uh, they, uh, unlike what we've been talking about so far, where we've been talking rye and we've been talking corn. Uh, Irish whiskeys must include malted barley. Absolutely must, must, must. Uh, <laughs> which I, f- I found pretty interesting uh, because I didn't actually know much about uh, bar- barley and malted barley. Uh, but, but Irish whiskeys are made from cereal grains. Uh, so, you know, corn could be in there, but it's mostly, you know, barley and um, why can't I think of any others right now? I didn't write them down, uh, but there's malted and unmalted barley. Um, luckily, the other grains don't really seem to enter in all that much, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, the <laughs> Irish whiskeys go fucking hard, which I really love. Uh, bourbons, uh, the mash uh, can't go past 160 proof when it's distilled. Irish whiskeys can go no higher than 189.6 proof. Fuck yeah. And you know, you know, some, some Irishman has gone all the way to that 0.6. Yeah. And most of the Irish, uh, most of the other whiskeys we've talked about have a maximum proof that they can be bottled at. No, fuck that. Ireland said, hold my beer. So the rule with Irish whiskeys is that they can be bottled at no less than 80 proof. It's fucking amazing. I really wish I liked Irish whiskey more. I really do. <laughs> I, I think you got to expand your palate, buddy. I, I guess I have to. Uh, so uh, Irish whiskey is matured in wood casks of no more than 700 liters each uh, for a minimum of three years. Uh, same thing as bourbon, no additives or coloring. Um, it has to, quote, retain the characteristics of its raw materials. So uh, if you're if you make it with malted barley, it's going to come out tasting like a malted barley whiskey at the end of it. Uh, If you're using an oak barrel, it's got to taste like an oak barrel aged whiskey at the end. So I think that's why we tend to not see cask aged whiskeys uh, in Ireland very often. Uh, Of Irish whiskeys, there are four main types of Irish whiskeys because they've got their own. Uh, so there's malt, uh, uh, malted or malt Irish whiskeys made with hundred percent malted barley distilled in pot stills. Uh, this is where that single malt idea comes from. Uh, single malt really means that, uh, the whiskey only comes from one distillery. So it's, you know, aged and bottled there and isn't, you know, a blend of, okay, we, ran out, so we got a couple of barrels or a hundred barrels from another distillery over there. Uh, there's pot still as the second type, a mash of minimum 3% malted barley, a minimum of 30% unmalted barley with up to 5% of the other cereal grains. That's where that, like, you know, I didn't write them down because it's up to 5%. It doesn't really matter too much. Uh, grain is, uh, no more than 30% malted barley. We're leaning away from the malted barley in this one. And then blended is kind of, you know, some sort of amalgam of the other three types, two or more. Uh, Irish whiskeys are amazing. Uh, I love them. 
uh, they generally are my go-to whiskeys. Um, you know, I, I love bourbons. I love rye. But if if I have to make a snap decision while ordering in a, in a group, I tend to lean towards Irish. Uh, on the low end, we've got things like proper number 12, Bushmills, uh, some of Jameson's lower tier uh, entries. Uh, mid-tier, we've got Teeling and Napog. Uh, Jameson also makes some entries that get up into mid-tier, things like uh, Black Barrel uh, is generally considered mid-tier. And then for the high end, uh, there wasn't a whole lot, honestly, because it seems like uh, you know Bushmills tends to go from really low end to actually having a high end co- competitor. Uh, Jameson has a high end competitor as well. Um, but the one that really seemed to stand out was Redbreast. You ever had Redbreast? Can't say I have. I, I've I've had it uh, recommended to me by my good buddy Niall, friend of the show, a couple of times. Uh, so I I'll be looking to review that hopefully this season. Uh, but it's it, it sounds really good, so I can't wait. Um, so yeah, Irish whiskey. The Irish come hard for whiskey, and I salute them for it. Yeah, I, I'm, next time I go to the liquor store, I'm gonna have to take a walk into the Irish section. Might be time. Although, you know, between the Enos, you know, already canceling us, the show's really going to be over because you called Private Number 12 Entry Level McGregor's going to come kick your ass. <laughs> you know, I, I uh, say I say lower tier again, just because it doesn't cost a lot of money doesn't mean it's uh, it's crap whiskey. Uh, but I was I was generally thinking of the like twenty five to fifty dollars, fifty dollars to one hundred and then hundred dollars and up. Um, and I mean, proper number 12 does not cost that much money. So that's kind of why it's, it's lower tier. He's coming for you. He probably is. What's your last one, buddy? Well, we're going to stay in that region of Europe. We're all going to do scotch because I knew you wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So now before we start, we have to drop the E in whiskey for scotch. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of fun. Uh, Scotch has to be distilled at least twice, which is a fun little requirement. Uh, and there's an interesting loophole because, you know, it is technically supposed to be brewed, you know, made in Scotland. But you can kind of get around it. There are different companies, especially in Japan and a few other places, that just import water from Scotland. Didn't they put a kibosh on that recently? They're trying to, and it's probably not going to be a thing if they haven't banned it already, it's not going to be a thing by the end of this year. Uh, but it was a fun little loophole because that, of course, is where you traditionally get that balky taste that DJ loves so much. That uh, DJ hates so much, yes. Uh, of course, you can get around this in a few different ways also. Uh, the Few Distillery, which we have reviewed a few of their products. Oh, that was a lame pun that I wasn't even intending. Uh, But the few distillery, they make a scotch, but of course, since they don't follow some of these rules, they can't call it a scotch. So they call it an American because they're an American distillery. Yeah. Which I think is kind of fun. Uh, Now the process for scotch is extremely old. The process for distilling, of course, is extremely old. We've talked about this. But uh, a lot of the same traditions, a lot of the same rules, a lot of the same methods are very old. Just one that I uh, found very briefly in searching that I don't even think is the oldest, but Glenfiddich as a brand as we know it today dates back to 1887. 
And I'm sure there's some that are older, but I was just like, yeah, okay, Glenfiddich. I have a bottle of that upstairs. It's fucking old. Okay. Uh, it's popular worldwide. And as we saw during the Trump administration, it can literally affect economies and trade wars. <laughs> uh, the going back and forth between Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, and then later on Johnson and Biden over the tariff specifically on scotch. Mm. This was a major talking point in meetings between the two leaders. Like you would go to trade agendas and there'd be like scotch on the agenda to talk about. Uh, it was fucking wild. Uh, they're generally aged uh, three years all the way up to 30 and beyond. If you can think of a, a, a date, chances are you can probably find a bottle of scotch that's that old. Uh, aged in wooden casks. The price range for this one, this is your biggest one. Uh, you could start at about $30, $35 for a pretty bleh bottle, and you can go all the way up well over $1,000. And again, these are just the ones that when you walk into a store, you can find. I've just been sitting here fiddling around uh, while we're online. I found a bottle of Johnny Walker, DJ. Uh, yeah. Johnny Walker's 1805 Celebration Blue Label Blended Scotch Whiskey. Do you want to take a guess how much I can get this for? Now, I'll give you a hint. They are hooking me up a little bit here. Uh, this is from the Fruit Bat website. Uh, they are hooking me up here. There's no tax on this. It's duty-free. Uh, five grand? Uh, you were close. Put a four in front of that. 45,000. Jesus. Oh, my God. I was so <laughs> far off. <laughs> $44,869.99. Jesus. Uh, oh, but there's only $20 flat shipping. So, you know, hey, $44,900. Uh, you know, this I'm being facetious to illustrate a point, but scotch can get very expensive. Um, scotch also, depending on what distillery it's from and depending on what type of barrels they use, I would argue... As much as I love rye, rye is my favorite. You kind of know what you're going to get with rye. You're going to get the bite. You're going to get the spice. Scotch can be many different things. Yeah. If you're from the highlands, if you're from the lowlands, if you're from Islay, you could be smoky. You could be woody. You could be leathery. You have that great bog taste or you don't have that bog taste. You could be fruity. You could be smooth. You can find a scotch to do pretty much whatever the hell you want it to do. Even DJ's found a few he likes. <laughs> That's yeah, true. Uh, the the malts are the key, much like with Irish whiskey. Uh, if you have a blend, it's usually less aged and cheaper, although not always. Uh, and if you have a single malt, it's going to be a lot older, a lot smoother, and a hell of a lot more expensive. Uh, this is where it gets fun. We were talking about single barrels earlier. A lot of distilleries will claim that it's a single cask. And they are, unless they're not. Much like Irish whiskey, there's like pot stilling and a few other different ways to do this. And for scotch, they could get away with saying that it's single cask as long as the final cask is all the same that the bottle comes from. So let's say you have five barrels and you're going through your process and you're changing a few things or whatever, and you put scotch from those five barrels into one cask, you can then claim that that bottle is still single cask and this isn't that big of a deal to me but uh going online people have opinions of it, let me tell you 
Uh, like rye or bourbon, everything else, you have your high and your low end. It could be mass produced. You have your Shivas, you have your Johnny Walker, although not that $45,000 bottle of Johnny Walker. No. Um, or you can have, you know, much more limited releases. Some of the fucking Glenlivets, holy shit. I mean, even though you can get decently priced Glenlivets, some of the releases are fucking ridiculous. Um, pairs great with meat, a good fucking steak, nice prime rib, and a glass of fucking scotch. You can't mm-hmm. go wrong. Yeah. Uh, and if you have to put them in a cocktail, go with the Rusty Nail or the Rob Roy. But don't don't put scotch in a cocktail. Just or, don't. Or scotch and soda. Scotch and soda is great. Just maybe don't do yeah, it that's with true, Johnny too. Walker Blue. No. <laughs> <laughs> I did forget uh, for Irish whiskey. Irish whiskey goes really well with coffee. Yeah, it does. Um, so I, I mean, I, I feel like this is the obvious one and I, I, this is just kind of a gimme, but I, a good, uh, Irish coffee, uh, with, you know, maybe a splash of Bailey's in it. Really great. It's a fucking fantastic cocktail. All right. Take us home. What, what do we have to end with? All right. The last one here is Japanese whiskey. And I had a really hard time with this, um, because there's just, it's very, I, I feel like it's not very well represented in the U.S. Like, you you look at, even the Irish whiskey section is like twice the size of the Japanese whiskey section at my liquor stores around here. Um, you know, you see just wall-to-wall American whiskey, bourbon, rye, and generally the rye section's a little bit smaller, but it's still there. Scotches usually have a huge fucking section. And then usually at the tail end of the scotch is like half of a thing with only a couple of shelves of Japanese whiskey. Uh, but Japanese have been making whiskey for fucking ever. Uh, it's, it, they began making whiskey around 1870. Uh, the really interesting thing about Japanese whiskey is that the Japanese distillers actually brought distilling techniques back from Scotland and Japanese whiskey tends to be a lot closer to scotch than any other kind of whiskey. Um, must use malted grains. So that's that's kind of the, the one of the big rules. Um, in order for it to be called a Japanese whiskey and not a Japanese scotch, uh, the water must be from Japan. Japanese whiskeys tend to drop the E as well. Uh, fermentation must happen in a, Jap- uh, a Japanese distillery, must be aged in wooden casks stored in Japan for at least three years. Bottling must take place in a Japanese distillery at at least 80 proof. So, you know, swinging uh, for the fences, just like uh, Irish whiskeys tend to. Uh, unlike all the others I mentioned, plain caramel color may be used, but that's the only additive that they allow. Uh, whiskeys that don't meet the above requirements may not use the names of geographical locations in Japan, the Japanese flag, or the names of people that evoke the country in their labeling. I got that straight off of uh, one of the sites I was reading. Um, I did not come up with that, but that is a fantastic statement. Like, if you are, and, and this is true, if you look at a lot of Japanese uh, whiskey bottles, they tend to be very steeped and themed around Japanese culture, Japanese symbolism, lots of Japanese characters, the Japanese flag or Mount Fuji or something like that might be all over the place. Um, There is a fair debate going on right now, Mark, about rice whiskey. Yes. Uh, So rice whiskey is a gray area 
and in order to kind of just avoid the whole topic in general, most distilleries that make rice whiskey are uh, just call it shochu. Uh, so if, if we're not talking about shochu today, I may do a, a tools of the trade on shochu later if I can get my hands on some. Uh, shochu is its own thing. Uh, it, it's it, it, the interesting part about whiskey is that when you're when you're making the mash of whiskey, it's actually pretty close to a, a beer mash. Um, I, I've got some some friends who know a lot more about distilling than I do. And uh, you, I mean, some of them. I, uh, are even known to just cut out the shortcut and take some beer that they made and just distill it until they can they can age it and make it whiskey. Um, rice whiskey is a little bit closer to rice wine. Um, Which I love. Yeah, I, I love it. Uh, I use it all the time in, in cooking. Uh, so shochu is great. Uh, definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, Japanese whiskey is one of those where it's really hard to rate things low-end... Mm-hmm versus high-end, because even the low-end of Japanese whiskeys are fucking hard to get over here, so they're expensive. Yeah, it's... Yeah, you had your work cut out for you on that one. I did, yeah. So the the low-end of Japanese whiskey, and again, this is still like a $35, $40 bottle, is Suntory Toki. Um, It's pretty good. I feel like... By its very nature, it tends to be like the go-to Japanese whiskey that everybody knows. Um, so I, I hate to I hate to throw like a generic label. Uh, I've reviewed it. I like it. It's it's pretty damn decent. Uh, but you've also got Hatozaki uh, at the low end, um, and then we start to get really mired because uh, each of the distilleries we're talking about have entries at every level. Uh, so mid-tier, I found one distillery that didn't seem to, to go out too much either way, and that was the Mars Maltage Cosmo Whiskey. Uh, but then at the high end, uh, I tend to think the lower end of the high end is the, the Nika Distillery, and I tried the Nika co- uh, Coffee Malt, and I love it. Um, but Nika has like multi-hundred dollar offerings at the high end. And so does Centauri. Centauri has an entry called Hibiki. Uh, that's also, it's up there. Um, so I, Japanese whiskey is is a bit of a mystery for me. I really want to get more into it. Um, so if you have any recommendations on whiskeys we can get here in the States from Japan, uh, that'd be pretty amazing. But again, they're, they're all pretty close to scotch. Luckily, I haven't found one yet that actually uses um, peat. Moss, so I, I don't know that they're necessarily peated. I'm going to find a bottle and send it to you for Christmas. You would. But yeah, that, I think that's our, our whiskey topic today. We've got through six of the major types today. God, six major types of whiskey in 60 minutes. Uh, this is, uh, as I like to say when I do some of my history lectures, this is very much a 101. Yeah. <laughs> we are but scratching the surface. But hey, we, we got through six different types, and you know who knows, maybe in a later season we'll do Whiskey and Whiskey 2, Electric Boogaloo, and we'll get into uh, you know some of the more fun types. So that's this week. Uh, we thank you all for listening this week and every week. Uh, you know, you'll be, this will be dropping on Good Friday. So happy Easter. Don't drink too much chocolate. And if you have dark chocolate, save it for your rye. 
Uh, it's a good combo. I'm telling you, you're going to thank me. Oh, yes. Uh, we release uh, Good Friday at every Friday, about 8 o'clock on all the various sites. We're on everything. Spotify, Apple, Google, Podbean, this notes. Fucking, there's like 40 of them. Uh, if you want to find us, you can find us. Uh, the, you know, intro and outro music, as always, it's our buddy, Nuno Henry Silva. We love him. Uh, he's going to, you know, be hooking us up with music from here on out. He's got another book out. Check that out. We'll give you links to his SoundCloud. We'll give you links to his book. Uh, what are we doing next week? Well, I I think my, my my math might be a little bit off here, but I think... I think we're we're pretty close to only having another couple of episodes in April. Do we wanna do we wanna hit uh, disasters in whiskey? Well, that could work uh, because you know at least as we record this, and I'm trying to find the the date. Yeah, it will only be a week off from the big one. So yeah, we could do disasters in whiskey. Um, God, there, there's a couple of them. We could talk about April, of course, is the Titanic. That'd be the big one. But we could talk about a few of the other just spectacular accidents, uh, land, sea, and air. So Yeah, I want to talk about the Hindenburg. Yeah, um, that's, God, oh, the humanity. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I kind of dig that. So join us next week. We're going to do Disasters and Whiskey. It's going to be another history episode, but it's going to be lighthearted. And, and DJ will be more involved in this one. So you won't have to listen <laughs> to me just drone on for 65 minutes. Lighthearted, uh, you know, disasters. Well, more lighthearted compared to some of our episodes. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's not the the best topic from a you know human interest perspective, but we'll make it should work. Yeah, we'll, we'll make we'll make it fun. Disasters. Well, I I can't think of a way to end. So on that note, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> hey, salute. Cheers. <laughs>